Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Great to see everybody today on another summer, sunny Sunday morning, right? All right, so far, we're going to continue our series in our church's distinctives today. The last two weeks, we've seen our first two distinctives. The first is scripture is central to all we do. The second is prayer is indispensable. And today, we're going to be leaning into our third distinctive, and that is everyone needs the gospel, especially me, especially you, okay? And when I say everyone needs the gospel, here's what we mean by that. We are a gospel-centered church. The driving belief we have is that everyone needs the gospel, but that belief always begins with me. Every believer needs the gospel on a moment-by-moment basis. We need to be reminded of God's grace, his unending love, and our new status before him in Christ. Only when the gospel is truly good news to us will we ever be positioned well to give it to others who desperately need it as well. All right, to help us see that this distinctive of our church is manifestly grounded in God's word, we are going to look together today at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So let's hear those pages turning. Make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you make your way there, I think you'd probably agree with me in our lives, in our day-to-day life, there's a lot of things that are matters of first importance, are there? Like a lot of priorities, a lot of first things. For example, maybe especially if you're a fan of the show alone, you know that in a survival situation, there are four priorities and in order, right? There's shelter, water, fire, and food. I'm going to share a short story with you about how I learned this the hard way, that matters of first importance are real facts, and they matter. They have real consequences in our real lives. So confession time. The pulpit's not a confession, but here we go. When my oldest son, Weston, was 11 years old, he and I took our first father-son backpacking trip together. It was like the special moment, right? It was around this time of year too. Going to be up on Mount Hood for just one night. I thought, it's summertime. Like, I don't have to worry about the weather. I don't have to worry about the first priority of shelter. Part of the experience is sleeping under the stars together, right? I packed a really small tarp just in case something crazy happened. But I didn't need to worry about shelter, I thought, right? Well, long story short, I completely failed, The hike up was on a beautiful summer day, and we were enjoying our time together as we set up camp, but guess what happens as we start to get ready to go down for the night? A storm comes in, it pours down rain, try to get the tarp up in in time, but the rain like comes in under the tarp, the ground is soaked, it rains all night long, literally, you can ask Weston, our sleeping bags were filled with water. Awesome dad work on my part, right? I forgot I didn't prioritize the matter of first importance and that being shelter. And then on top of it, just to fully share my confession, we wanted to keep it simple, so we packed just like a bunch of Cliff Bars and snacks. Well, guess what? I bought all caffeinated Cliff Bars. So so my 11-year-old son is hyped up on caffeine, shivering in the dark. Are we having fun yet, Weston? Like good times had by all, right? Okay, so I share that with you. Matters of first importance really do matter, okay? We ended up 
you know, leaving early that morning. He wanted to go home, cold and miserable, total dad fail. Weston is giving me grace, but there we go. So our passage today is going to highlight for us that matters of first importance are real and true and abundantly so in an ultimate sense. So follow along with me now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. All right, please agree with me in prayer together before we begin. Father, we need you today. Through your word and by your spirit, impress these things on our hearts. Make your gospel sweet to us today. Open your word to us now and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to see two different things today. Here's where we're going. First, verses one through seven, gospel facts. And then in verses eight through 11, we're going to see gospel identity. So first, gospel facts. Look down at the Bible in front of you and just look how chapter 15 begins. Now, I would remind you, God's word in front of you says, and what is Paul reminding them about? The gospel. Why did he need to remind the Corinthians of the gospel? For those of you that are familiar with your Bible, 1 Corinthians was written only about 20 years after Jesus's death and resurrection as ascension. And yet they needed to be reminded of the gospel. He's having to remind them because we're made of the same stuff they are. They were prone to forget, we're prone to forget. They needed to be reminded, we need to be reminded too. Specifically, they needed to be reminded of the gospel in at least two kind of ways, ways that we need to be reminded of as well. First, we always need to be reminded of the depth of the gospel. Just look down at the Bible in front of you at verses one and two. Notice how the gospel is described and all that it does. The gospel message is one that is to be received. It's what you stand in as a Christian. And by it, you are being saved. Maybe you've had the misconception in your life thinking that the gospel is just what non-Christians need to hear. And it is, amen. 
but it's a lot more than that. Maybe you've had the misconception like, once I become a Christian, like I graduate from the gospel. I've moved beyond the gospel to really grow as a Christian. Then it's about me climbing the mountain, making progress in my walk with Jesus. I can say that because the context of our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 comes from earlier in the book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm sorry, back in chapter one, Paul talked about moving from the milk to the meat in our spiritual lives. But that doesn't mean we move past the gospel, that the meat of growing in your walk as a Christian is moving beyond or past the gospel. The movement from milk to meat in our lives as Christians is the movement from the milk of the gospel to the meat of the gospel. What that means is from receiving the gospel to standing in the gospel, to being saved by the gospel. That's right at the beginning here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The depth of the gospel is never exhausted in our lives as Christians. The story of your life as a Christian is you being reminded of this over and over and over again. We never move on from the gospel. We only move deeper and deeper into the gospel. So we have to be reminded, don't we, of the depth of the gospel because we're prone to forget it or assume it. We're prone to want to move past the gospel. But God, through his word, once for all time delivered to the saints, finds it necessary He knows us as our creator that we have to be reminded of the gospel. That's what God's word is doing for us here. So I just want to encourage you right now. Whatever you came with in here to church today, you need to be reminded of the gospel. That's true for every person in this room. For me too, we need to be reminded of the gospel. And then second, we always need to be reminded of the gospel because of what the gospel is. The gospel is true news. The greatest story ever told really happened in a real time and place with real people. The gospel we're to be reminded of isn't like being reminded of the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or whatever awesome favorite story you have that are great, but the gospel's true. It's historical. It really happened because the gospel, like it's been said, isn't good advice, it's good news. We have to be reminded of the news. J.I. Packer, for those that know him, said this, the gospel is the good news about the God who has acted in history to save us. And we have to be reminded of that. Look at verses three through seven and just listen to how the facts of the gospel, these true events are described. And again, just just like lean into this because the gospel isn't just primarily about like religious ideas. The gospel is good news, news of true events that really truly happened. And these are matters of first importance. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So notice two things about this good news. First, all of this happened according to what? According to the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. Just like what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, when he says, all of the Old Testament is ultimately about me. It's pointing to Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't plan B. It was plan A from the beginning of time. It was according to the scriptures. So as we're in this distinctive series, we're exploring this for the truth of it. And it also helps like inform who we are as a local church and maybe why we do some of the things we do, the rhythms in our church. That the gospel is according to the scriptures. It informs the pulpit of this church. Whoever is up here unfolding the word of God, we're going to do that in a way that we're a gospel-centered church. So we're going to preach from the Old Testament and we're gonna preach from the New Testament. We're going to see that the promises about Jesus were made in the Old Testament and the promises were kept in the New Testament. So if the gospel is according to the scriptures and we're a gospel-centered kind of church, we're going to preach from all of the scriptures because the gospel is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need the full counsel of God's word. And because the gospel is according to the scriptures, this also means that we value here at GBC biblical theology. We care about the theology of the Bible itself, what the Bible says about itself. Maybe you came here today. If you've been at GBC for a while, you're probably like, yeah, I've heard this before, Mike. Good, praise the Lord. We need to be reminded of it, don't we? Like the Bible is not just a bunch of disconnected stories or morality tales. It has a hero, the hero's not us, it's Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. That the gospel is according to the scriptures also informs how we preach in this church. By God's grace, you're going to hear God's word proclaimed in a way that highlights the gospel. Because ultimately the gospel is not first about what we do, it's about what's been done once for all time in a, in a kind of way that it is finished. So if the gospel is according to the scriptures, that's how we need to hear it. That's how you're going to hear it preached. And I pray that's how you delight in it as you hear the word preached week after week here at Gresham Bible Church. So as we've said these last two sermons, I'm gonna say it again in our distinctive series. Like we all have skin in the game here. If you're a member of GBC, that means you need to continue praying for the pulpit of this church, that it is a gospel-centered kind of pulpit, that we delight in the gospel being proclaimed, that we treasure, that we value, that we love the gospel according to the scriptures. So second, verses three through seven here carries it with it this idea that Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection, again, I don't want you to miss this. It all really happened. These are real historical events. And because of that, 
They're verifiable. It's like Paul is telling the Corinthians, the gospel is trustworthy. You don't have to check your intellect at the door to be a Christian is what he's saying here. He's saying here to the Corinthians, only 20 years after Jesus ascended, go check it out for yourselves, right? He's saying, go talk to the eyewitnesses that really saw this because the gospel is news about what really happened. And then in verse six, just to make a point, Paul calls out, he highlights that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he says, most of these 500 are still alive. Go talk to them. They saw it. They witnessed it. And what's amazing about this is that the standard back then, the standard in the Jewish court system, like for a witness to be credible, there had to be two or three witnesses that were eyewitnesses of an event for a court to consider that as truth. Well, Jesus kind of ups the ante here. He appeared to 500 people at one time. It's really true. It's verifiable. It's a fact. Jesus provided overwhelming proof that he's alive, that he rose from the dead. One other rhythm we have here at GBC is that if you're not a Christian and you're here checking out the claims of Jesus, we're really glad you're here. There's no better place than church to consider, is Jesus really who he said he is? And if that's you here today, I'd encourage you to check out the claims of Christianity. Do your homework. Use your intellect, the intellect that God gave you as made in his image. And you'll find that these events are historical realities. There is no question about Jesus being a historical person. Non-Christians, Christians. That is established as fact. So if you can acknowledge that fact, that reality, why can't what Jesus said about himself also be true? So I'd encourage you to take seriously the claims and implications we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Jesus you have to take seriously is the Jesus according to the scriptures. Not the Jesus who never challenges you. Not the Jesus who never disagrees with you. If that's the Jesus you've come to believe in, that's more of a Jesus of your own making that's more in line with your cultural sensibilities than the once for all time delivered to the saints of the Jesus according to scriptures. The real Jesus will always challenge us, individually, corporately. And if he's not, you have to ask, why is that? So I'd lovingly challenge you If you're here at GBC, by God's grace, you're going to see we mean this. We're appealing to you if you're not here and you don't know Jesus in love, by God's grace. I'd lovingly challenge you. How can you verify the truth claims about Jesus better than those who could talk to so many eyewitnesses? By appearing to so many people at so many different times, Jesus rising from the dead could not be a bunch of wishful thinking or mass hallucinations. If you're being honest intellectually, you have to take that off the table. It's not an option for you. These same eyewitnesses came to believe that Jesus really 
was and is who he said he is according to the scriptures to the degree that they were willing to be martyred, sawn in two, burned at the stake, eaten by lions, okay? You have to deal with that if you're looking into Jesus in an honest kind of way. And I'd ask you this too. If you're not taking the claims of Jesus seriously, why aren't you? What are you avoiding? The weight of the evidence would say, if you're skeptical about the Jesus of the Bible, be skeptical about your skepticism. It's true. It really happened. All right. So in order for these facts, this isn't just history class. You're like, great, Mike, this is all true. I don't like history. I'm sorry you don't like history. This is true. But we also have to know what this all means. Why does this matter? Why is the cross an empty tomb good news? And it's because of what verse 3 says right in front of you, that Christ died for our sins. The death of Jesus wasn't random. It was for something. It was on behalf of our sins. And when you hear the word sin today, first, that probably like gives you pause, right? That's not like a really popular word word in our culture. If you were to Google like most popular 10 words in 2023, I guarantee you the word sin is not on that list, right? But when you hear the word sin, like what comes to mind? I bet for you, probably what comes to mind is probably like behavior, right? Kind of like the outward look of what sin looks like, sounds like, how it presents itself. And in one way, that is definitely true. Sin does have to do with our behaviors. God's word talks about it. But it's also, according to God's word, much more than that. Sin, biblically, basically has to do with our overall attitude and posture toward God. At its heart, sin is wanting to live without God. Really, it's wanting to be on the throne of your life rather having than God on the throne of your life. A guy by the name of Arthur McGill, just sounds like a great name, right? Arthur McGill said this about sin. Sin is not a matter of morality or conduct, but a state of orientation of a man's consciousness, which does not make God its center. Sin is about not making God your center. So when you think about this, why does everyone need the gospel, our distinctive says? Everyone needs the gospel because everyone is a sinner. We want to be at the center of our lives rather than having God at the center, don't we? The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, maybe that offends you. Maybe you're a really nice sinner. Maybe you're like a really moral sinner who's a really good neighbor, who looks out for other people. I'm I'm like really glad you're a good citizen of Gresham, but you're a sinner. Whether you're a nice sinner, a moral sinner, or a sinner sinner, you're a sinner. And that's according to God. You don't want God at the center of your life. So do we sin because we're sinners? Yes. Are we sinners because we sin? Yes. Both are true. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of first importance because it addresses our deepest need, the problem of our sin. Verse three says it, Jesus Christ died for our sin. That's what his death was for, 
to bring an end to the alienation and to forgive us of our sin fully and completely, to reconcile, reconcile us back to God. And in all of this, we have to ask, why did Christ have to die for our sins? So God's word says he died for our sins. Well, why? The answer is because you and I are completely incapable in and of ourselves of curing this alienation. We don't have the remedy within ourselves. It requires God to do something on our behalf. He died for our sins. It required him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, didn't it? We needed a substitute. And God brought us back to himself at great cost to himself through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. A guy named John Stott, some of you are maybe familiar with, John Stott once said this, the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. The essence of our sin and the essence of our salvation makes this a matter of supreme first importance, doesn't it? What Christ came to do, what it shows us about ourselves and about God. And the good news doesn't stop there. Just look down at verse four. I pray with like fresh wonder and fresh eyes. Jesus Christ really truly rose from the dead. The tomb really is empty. Jesus has risen, full stop, no caveats. Jesus Christ is alive. We have to be reminded of this. We have to, because we're prone to forget, prone to trust our unbelief more than what God says. But think with me just briefly, like what are all the implications of the tomb being empty? This can become too familiar to us and it shouldn't. This is glory and wonder unimaginable that human language barely scratches the surface of. And I'm not sure again in what way you need to be reminded of this today, that the resurrection really happened, but I promise you, you need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. Why? Because the resurrection means that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins meant God received that payment in full. A holy God was completely satisfied. For those that have repented and trusted in Jesus, Jesus lived the perfect life you should have lived, and he died the death you deserve to die. It's certain that your sins really are forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof. Jesus was cast off so you could be welcomed in. What's the evidence? The resurrection. And the resurrection, the fullness of the gospels on display through the resurrection. The resurrection, it's something of kind of like a kind of like first fruits. It's the beginning. 
the down payment of God making all things new, of making all of creation new, of healing his creation and God's kingdom breaking in. Like that, that's amazing. The resurrection shows the size and the scope and the wonder and the glory of the gospel. That it really has, the gospel really has cosmic implications that we're being transformed from glory to glory. But do we really live like that's true? We don't. So we need to be reminded of it often. First Corinthians chapter 15, a lot of you know this, but like the trajectory of it, it just goes on to unpack and apply the implications of the resurrection. The resurrection is proof that the sting of death is removed because the poison of death went into Jesus and he rose in victory over sin and death. In a very real kind of way, death died at the death of Christ. And how do we know? Because the tomb's empty. Because God's word in front of you, verse four says, Christ rose. It's true. It's true. It's more true than your unbelief. And because of that, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because Jesus rose from the dead, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof we will be with God for those that trust in Jesus. We will be with God forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more tears. It's glory, it's joy, compounding interest forever and ever all time. Your brain just melts down. We have proof for it. We need to be reminded of it. Brothers and sisters of Gresham Bible Church, let me remind you of the gospel that Christ died for your sins and that Christ rose from the dead because that literally changes everything. This means that because the tomb of Jesus is really empty, ultimately everything is going to be okay. Whatever you're struggling with today, Ultimately, everything is going to be okay because the tomb is empty and really more than just okay, right? Because Jesus really rose from the dead. Because the tomb is empty, we can know that everything sad is going to come untrue. That's the glory and the promise and the wonder that 1 Corinthians 15 points us to. So we need to be reminded of this, don't we? All right, so we've seen in verses one through seven that everyone needs the gospel. Amen, everyone needs the gospel. We need to be reminded of it often. But why, especially me, we say in Gresham Bible Church is distinctive. So this brings us to our second point of emphasis, and that's gospel identity. How do we experience this gospel in our day-to-day lives? And the gospel, you'd agree with me, it changes so many things. But here, just look down at God's word in front of you. Here in verses 8 through 11, we see one specific way in which the reality and the beauty of the gospel impacted Paul's life. And by extension, we're going to see how it impacts our lives today too. 
So what's one specific way the gospel changes us? It changes us in our identity at the core of who we are. So look with me now at verses 8 through 11. What's it say? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so we believed. The gospel changed how Paul viewed himself, didn't it? Because the gospel was applied to his identity and it impacted his own identity. So in verse eight, when you see it, see it say, say, Paul says, last of all, as one untimely born. What does that mean? Literally, when he says as one untimely born, it means I'm like an aborted fetus. Sorry for the crass language, but that's what it says. He's like, I'm an aborted fetus. Paul is saying he knows. He knows in his heart of hearts. He doesn't deserve God's grace and he doesn't deserve to be used by God. He is fully aware of his past. He was honest about his sin. Honest about before coming to faith in Jesus, Paul was none other than a religious terrorist. In the name of God and for God, he persecuted and had Christians killed because he thought that pleased God. So he knows, he remembers who he used to be. He's not sugarcoating things, but he can also proclaim because of the gospel, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He's saying the gospel changes everything because through the gospel, he's more defined by God's grace than his sin. The gospel reformed and revived him to the degree that the cross was bigger than his failures and his shame. And he had significant things, significant sin in his past. I bet that woke him up in the middle of the night as maybe he saw Stephen's face when he held the coats as Stephen was stoned to death. Okay, that's the same guy we're talking about here. But because of the gospel, he knew the real depths of his sin and he also knew that God's grace goes deeper still. Paul said it like this in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Wow. When you think about it, Paul never got over salvation. He was always at wonder that he, the chief of sinners, God saved him. And for those of you that know Jesus here today, you shouldn't get over the wonder of your salvation either. Paul's identity was grounded in God's work for him, not his failures and not even his own ministry work for God. His identity was not grounded in that. His identity, who he is, I am what I am by the grace of God. 
So do you know how this gospel works? I was just thinking about this this last week. This is true. Paul had a bunch of Christians killed and then Jesus saves this guy on the road to Damascus and uses a religious terrorist to advance the gospel in early Christianity. What an amazing story and it's all true, right? So you know how the gospel works? The gospel works like when Paul, after he gets his head cut off outside Rome, you know what welcomes him into heaven? The cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works, okay? So it reorients and it changes your identity and your view on the world. Pastor Alistair Begg said this, and he said a lot cooler in a Scottish accent, but here's what he said. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. So is God's grace really that amazing to you? Is that what you are, to use Paul's language here? Has that penny dropped from concept in your mind? Has that penny dropped into the, into the belief center of your heart, of the amazing grace of the gospel? And you know what happens when that penny drops? When the power of the gospel and the glory of the grace of God gets a hold of your heart? you become like what we see on the pages of scripture, according to scripture. You pour your life out in knowing Christ and making him known. You count everything as loss compared to knowing him and helping others know him. What does Paul say here because of God's grace? Did it make him lazy? Was he a frozen chosen kind of Christian? He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Do you want to experience a kind of Christian life that matters, that makes a difference, that has purpose? It's not by moving past the gospel. It's going deeper into it. It's all about the grace of God. So can you say that? Paul could, because when the facts of the gospel are applied to your heart through faith, you get a new identity a new identity that changes everything. Because for the Christian, your identity is built on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It's an identity that's received, right? That was just earlier in our text. The gospel's received. It's an identity that's received. It's not an identity that's conceived by you or achieved by you. It's an identity that's received and that changes everything. If you're a Christian, you're defined by Christ's achievements more than your failures. And I don't know what all those failures are in your life, but I know you're defined more by Christ's achievement because the religious terrorist Paul was. So it's true for you too. If you're a Christian, the righteousness of Jesus is truer of you than your sin and your shame. Your shame is really loud in the inner voice of our hearts, isn't it? It tries to define us and tells us who we are. The gospel rebukes that shame and it was nailed to the cross once for all time. The Christian has an identity that's so glorious and so good and freeing in our lives. What do we often try to do though? What do we do? We try to build our identity for ourselves, don't we? 
But if your identity is one that you achieve for yourself in some kind of way, do you know what's going to happen? Your success is going to puff you up with self-righteous pride. And when you fail, you're going to be crushed. If you try to build your identity yourself, it's like a house of cards. Someday it will fall down on you. And maybe for you, you're trying to conceive of your own identity. You're trying to take some identity and put it on you because you think that'll find, you'll find the purpose and the meaning you're looking for in that. But if you conceive your identity, you're going to end up using people to prop up the identity you're trying to build for yourself. It will be very unhealthy in your life if your identity is placed anywhere else than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you really think about it, like really think about this, I hope you reflect on this this week, like prayerfully reflect on it. Whatever you're trying to find your identity in, in other words, you're trying to find your salvation in. So if you're trying to find your salvation, your identity in anything other than Jesus, we have God's word that you're ultimately going to be disappointed and enslaved by that other identity. Your core identity has to be in Jesus Christ. That's the only identity that'll never disappoint you, never leave you, will always satisfy you. Any other identity is only going to enslave you. The identity each of us need, like our deep identity, the identity behind all the other identities, is not one we make up for ourselves, but it's one that's made for us through Jesus Christ. The identity God gives us through the gospel is an identity that's unshakable and life-giving. Just look at how Paul talks about it in verses 8 through 11. This is because it's an identity, again, that's purchased for you through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and it's proven for you through his resurrection. It's an identity that's received, not one you strive for through your own achievement, not one that you can get by trying to conceive of an identity. So I can't help but encourage us to ask a few self-reflective questions here, individually and corporately. I wonder if you're being really, really honest, what would you say is the foundation of your identity lately? Is it what others are saying about you? Is it what you're thinking about yourself? Is your identity more defined by your failures, by your places of sin and shame, maybe even misplaced shame? What's your identity feel like for you lately? What's your identity feel like? Can you truly say in your heart of hearts, but by the grace of God, I am what I am? Or are you hiding from the grace of God in some kind of way in your life? Does your shame feel more real to you than God's grace? Are you avoiding having your identity grounded fully in the gospel? And I think if we're being honest, we have to say yes to those questions in some kind of ways, right? And one way I think that we say yes is because leaning into this, into the gospel identity, it can feel really scary in certain kind of ways. 
trusting Jesus so much that your core identity is built on him and defined by him. I just want to encourage you, like if you're feeling that from the gospel today, you're in a really, really good place. You're in a really good place because that means you're leaning into the grace of God. You're seeking, you want to build your identity on God's grace. The reason I can say that place of faith, of dependence is a great place to be because there's a, a quote, I can't recall who said it, but there's a quote that says, the feeling of faith isn't strength, but dependent weakness. You want to grow into having your identity fully in Christ? It's not going to feel like you're strong. It's going to feel a lot like dependent weakness, and that's really, really good. So do you want a gospel identity? You have to lean into your dependent weakness with confession and repentance and let Jesus rebuild your identity from the inside out, an identity that's received through the gospel. The challenge of the Christian life, of your walk as a Christian, of my walk as a Christian, the challenge before us is to see ourselves as God sees us. Because how he sees you, Christian, is how he sees Jesus. Because you come before him wrapped in the perfect righteousness of his son. So do you, I hope you can see and hope you can even feel a little bit today, like how freeing and how life-changing a gospel identity is of how much you need this. And if you don't think you need this, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself that you don't have to be reminded of it because we need to be reminded of this like we need to be reminded to breathe, okay? That's how important this is. And this gospel identity is not psychobabble. This gospel identity is built on gospel facts. That's how this passage of scripture works together. Why everyone needs the gospel, especially me. It starts with me. Through the gospel, God is making all things new in your life and all the way out into his world. And then as the gospel is really, truly good news to us in this kind of way, we'll be positioned to give it to others who desperately need it as well. You know what happens like as you grow deeper in the gospel and your identity gets more and more on the firm foundation of the gospel? You'll start to proclaim the gospel because you love the gospel. So the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. You'll start to be filled more and more with humility and courage because when you share with your unsaved friend or neighbor or coworker about Jesus, it's just like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. You are no better. You are what you are by the grace of God. So the gospels for everyone, and especially me, this matters for who we are in your health, in your own life as a Christian, the health in our church, and it matters for your mission in advancing the cause of the gospel in our time and place. Because as the gospel gets a hold of your heart, it animates the posture of your life. It can't help but do that. That's the DNA of the gospel. All right, so as we close... I hope I've proven what I'm trying to argue, argue to you, that we all need the gospel. Each of us need to be reminded of it often. 
that it's a matter of first importance and that when it's applied to our hearts, the gospel gives us a new identity that's as certain and beautiful as the very grace of God. So I'm going to close now for us by reading to us a short poem called The Gospel Way. This is in, for those of you that are familiar with it, it's in the book called The Valley of Vision. That's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. As you hear this, I would encourage you to make this your prayer individually and pray this for our church corporately because everyone needs the gospel, especially me. The gospel way. Blessed Lord Jesus, no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel. Acting in internal grace, thou art both its messenger and its message. Lived out on earth through infinite compassion, applying thy life to insult, injury, death, that I might be redeemed, ransom, freed. Blessed be thou, O Father, for contriving this way. Eternal thanks to thee, O Lamb of God, for opening this way. Praise to thee, O Holy Spirit, for applying this way to my heart. Glorious Trinity, impress the gospel on my soul until its virtue diffuses through every faculty. Let it be heard, acknowledged, professed, felt. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the gospel. By your grace, may we stand in it and may we hold fast to it. We confess and repent, Lord, of finding our identity in things other than you. Renew us, restore us, revive us. Make us a gospel kind of people whose identities are built on your grace. May we be unashamed of your gospel today, this week, and until glory. Impress the gospel on our hearts and may it be heard, acknowledged, professed, and felt in the life of this church. We praise you for your grace that you really are making all things new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.